Thank you for coming. Uh, I'll just open with a word of prayer really quick, and then we'll get right into it. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for this place. Uh, thank you for the opportunity that you give us to come each week and to learn about you and to, to share your word and spread your gospel. Father, I pray that you will uh, make us stewards of that and um, you will cause us to, um, to just go and proclaim your, your word to the world that desperately needs it. We pray all this in the name of your Son. Amen. Amen. Very good. So, um, I have a bit of a task today because I'm going to try to explain um, sort of the key tenet or the key feature of presuppositional apologetics, which I mentioned last week. So I'm going to explain the key feature of it, which um, we're just going to go to 10,000 feet right away. Um, we're going to be talking about the word transcendental. Okay, so in presuppositional apologetics, it's formerly known as the transcendental argument for the existence of God, or simply TEG. Uh, we don't really need to worry about the A and the G, because that's pretty self-explanatory. But the word transcendental, we're going to unpack that a little bit. So before we do that, we have to understand a little bit about um, sort of the history of philosophy and things like that. So I'm going to do just the, the briefest, quickest version I can. In the mid-1800s, right, so like uh, 1820 to around the turn of the century, you had a bunch of, of these uh, modern philosophers who, coming out of sort of the Aristotelian or Aristotle's way of thinking, which was we learn by looking at the world, what they call empiricism. So empiricism says, I learn through my senses. So my senses are reliable. What I see, for example, if I see that the sky is blue, my senses are reliable, so therefore I can infer or know that the sky is blue, right? Well, what the guys in the 18th century, or really the 19th century, what they were fed up with was the fact that that assumed that your senses were reliable. And so what they were trying to do is find the basis for what justified using their senses, rather than just saying that my senses are reliable because my senses are reliable. They wanted something else. And what happened was is they were coming up with a lot of sort of weird ideas. Because these guys aren't Christians, right? Even if they sort of believe in God, it's, well, it's this one spirit of the world that, you know, gives it justification. Or it's the collective spirit of all mankind that gives it uh, justification. All these sort of things, right? Which is interesting because they're, tr they're sort of trying to pick little aspects of God's character while rejecting the rest of his character. So they're trying to like use his omniscience, if you will, but reject everything else about him. So God then just becomes this weird sort of spiritual force. Um, you know, God is in nature. Nature is God. Nature is the collective mind. Those sort of ideas arise out of that time. Well, it was actually until um, sort of the late um, 18th century that a philosopher named Van Til, Cornelius Van Til, who's sort of the father of presuppositional apologetics, came along and was like, look guys, the only thing that can justify us relying on our senses or us relying on the, um, the usefulness of logic is if the biblical God exists in the way that he's described in scripture. So Van Til set out to basically create a philosophy that said the only reason we can reason, the only way we can know anything is if the God of scripture exists. 
All these other gods, all these other philosophical systems don't work. They're utterly nonsense unless, and we can only reason unless God exists. And that's the very system of transcendental. It's the idea that because God transcends our systems of logic, of sight and sense and hearing and those sort of things, the way we learn about the world, we actually have a transcendent basis. We have a transcendent source that justifies us using things like our senses and like logic and things like that. Okay? So that's sort of the, the very, very fast version. So last week, we, uh, we left off with the main difference between really uh, the different types of apologetics, but really what we synthesized it down to was uh, two different competing worldviews, right? So we had the one which either accepted Scripture and viewed Scripture as the Word of God and as, as authoritative, or you had the people in the world that did not, right? So you have Christians and non-Christians, people who are affirming the authority of Scripture and people who are not affirming the authority of Scripture. Now, what we found out last week is that if you don't affirm the authority of Scripture, if you don't say that Scripture is supreme, that is the highest, then what it becomes is it's just on level ground with everything else, like logic, like our senses. So therefore, our senses and what we learn about the world is free to actually interpret Scripture, which is exactly what we experience all day when we get into the world and learn what the world believes, right? They're using science to interpret Scripture. They're using modern morality to reinterpret Scripture, right? And that's because they've put Scripture, really they've, they've just totally rejected it. But even if you sort of hold it to equal footing, it still becomes subservient. So that idea, I think we could, if I could come up with a quote, I would say this. So this would be my quote to summarize that. If Scripture is not supreme, then it is secondary. If it is secondary, then it carries no authority. So I'll say that again. If Scripture is not supreme, then it is secondary. And if it is secondary, it carries no authority. Right? So we obviously... Go ahead. So when you say it's supreme, supreme in what? Over, over everything? Meaning God is supreme. Right. And Scripture's His word to us. Right. So I never think of Scripture as supreme, I guess. Right. So that's, we're going to unpack that a little bit okay. to see where, okay... Obviously, we don't believe the Bible, as in the, the digital document on my iPad, is authoritative. Like, that doesn't actually have spiritual force, but it's God that gives it authority. So we're going to see, that's actually a perfect segue, we're going to get right into that to see how Scripture, it's authoritative because God is authoritative. The truth of Scripture. The truth of Scripture is authoritative because God is authoritative. Yeah. So I have a question. Yes. I buy that. And I'm wondering, though... Um, but God also created trees, and He also He created nature. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, what would you say? So, you know, I guess you can unpack that. How yeah. that's different from Scripture. I mean, I buy it. I'm just kind of right. Like, yeah. So, as we we talked about a little bit last week, that and um, well, actually, I'm just going to go and move ahead because yeah. I think I answer those questions. Yeah. So we'll just go right ahead. Um, so we we'll believe. Right. No, please do. <laughs> But hey, apologetics is about being on your toes. So if I can't answer your questions here, then, you know. Um, so we said, we asked the question, why do we then believe that Scripture is authoritative? Why do we believe it's supreme above natural revelation, right? 
We believe that because it's God's revealed word. It's his direct revealed word about himself and about reality. So as I said last week, it's the very thing God's direct word, or what we call special revelation, is the thing that he gives to us to correct our misunderstanding of natural revelation. So natural revelation is authoritative. That's what we, we looked at last week. It is authoritative, but not to the point in which it alone can give us the best and accurate information regarding God. Right? Go ahead, Byron. Just quickly, um, the natural world uh, screams about the existence of a God, and so it's like, but God chose to put it in such a way that He, he wants us to look at the world as a flat, linear. Thing. Right. We want He wants us to look up, right? Look up at Him. But science comes along, and of course we know the world is round. I mean, yep. the Bible talks about the orb floating out in space anyway. But anyway, it's like. Um, so science goes, ah, yeah, yeah, you guys, you flat, flat earth, flat-footed, flathead. You think you, you think you know everything. Speak for yourself, Byron. Look at the world is round. That just proves science is right and the Bible is wrong. Right. But it, God created the world in a certain way to have us look up all the time and experience the world to look, to look from side to side. And when you're on the planet, it looks flat. Right. So that's our experiential, that's our natural state as, as humans. Mm -hmm. But... So our eyes can fool us. Right. Our senses can and fool us. We're not, you know, we watch uh, one of these magicians disappear mm -hmm. and all that stuff. We go, oh, you know, this yeah. is freaky. But it's, it, it, so you can't really trust your senses. Right. And I think a, another great example of that is, I mean, we, we see God when great things happen, when there's beautiful sunrises and the sun's breaking through the clouds and we're like, oh my gosh, God's amazing, beautiful. But we have a very hard time seeing God and having that same response when our, our spouse dies, right? So that is very much the same sort of thing. That that is still natural revelation. Our spouse dying or a child dying or, or any, example, any negative example we could think of, right? anything that we would deem negative, those are part of God's revelation. That is God revealing His purpose and His plan for creation, for redemption, right? for rebirth, for renewal, things like that. But those things can very easily turn us off from God. So without Scripture, if we didn't have Scripture, we would just be like, what does the world say? Oh, God's a jerk. Why is He let bad things happen to us? Right? Well, Scripture gives us the answer to that. The natural world doesn't necessarily give us the, the clearest answer to that. That's interesting because I think that's the biggest complaint when I talk to people. That's the number one. Mm -hmm. It's not all this other... Why do these bad things? Right. The problem of evil. Why is there evil here? Yep. We're going to have a whole class on that. I think it's class number seven. It's not a problem. So we're going to, yep, we're going to get knee deep into that. All right. Uh, so moving on. So we established that scripture is authoritative because it's God's direct revelation about himself and about the world, right? So it's clarifying our understanding of the world, about the world, and also about him that we might infer from our lives and things like that, right? And... We might ask the question, well, why does he need to do this? Well, actually, what we find is that he's been doing this from the beginning, right? Man's fallen state, our depravity, has caused depravity and sort of our, our corruption to enter into our minds, our thinking, our reasoning, how we behave, right? The, the reaches of sin go into all of our lives, right? It's not like sin just affects our behavior, 
but our minds stay pure. Now our minds are tainted as well. Our reasoning ability, the conclusions that we'll come to on our own as sinful men apart from God, our interpretation of the natural world apart from God uh, is very dubious. Right? You don't have to look very far. Just look at the current election. Where yep. And we see how insanity runs amok. I mean, in, in the natural mind, right? Mm -hmm. What really bothers me is that there's born-again Christians that are just... Foaming, foaming at the mouth, yeah. yeah. Um, the scum that's floated to the top, if yeah. you will. I know, yeah, it's pretty amazing. Anyways, yes, we'll, we'll talk about that anyway, some other time. Sorry. Uh, no, it's okay. <laughs> how do you feel about that, Byron? <laughs> Tell us how you really pretty feel. Negative, yeah. Pretty negative. Um, so, as I said, it's Scripture, and it's interesting when you start studying this, um, you don't see God being revealed in that, huh? Yeah. Why do they use the nations? Really, really depravity. I'll speak on that. Yeah, depravity doesn't exactly reveal God. Um, truly. Um, actually, we see that uh, God spoke to his creation and gave special, what we call special revelation, even before the fall. Right? He created Adam and the natural world, you think that he could have created Adam in, in such a world that Adam would have just known exactly what to do. Now, Adam, I believe, was created with belief in God. He knew God existed. He knew where he came from. He knew who created him, uh, things like that. He knew who created the natural world, everything like that. But God still had to come to him and give him direct revelation, walk and talk with him regarding what his duties were in the garden Right? the commands to you know, be fruitful and fill the earth and, and things like that. And also, God had to directly communicate to him what the punishment would be for his disobedience. So we can see even from the very, very beginning, God didn't just create the world and leave us in it. He created, he created the world, puts us in it, and then he comes to us and speaks to us directly. That is, he speaks to his chosen people directly. And that is a narrative that we see throughout the entire Bible. Right? From Adam, Abraham, right? God comes and talks to Abraham, speaks to Abraham about the covenant that he's going to secure with him and his descendants. You've got Moses, who hears directly from God and is, and is uh, purposed um, to go and free the Israelites from Egypt, right? Moses receives the Ten Commandments from God, which is incidentally one of the, as me and my dad figured out, it's one of the three actual, actual writings of God. The other, the other two are um, Jesus writing in the sand and then uh, the finger writing on the wall. That So anyways, we just thought that was clever. Um, theological points, all right. Uh, so he receives the Ten Commandments, uh, the law, right? And then we have the prophets speaking to uh, the Jews concerning their um, state before God and how they become right, uh, can become uh, back into relationship with him and things like that. Then you have John the Baptist, who is preparing the way of Christ. And finally, we come to Christ himself. So Christ is the final and authoritative word, or rather, final and authoritative revelation of God, right? Really until his return. So I don't want to make the mistake of thinking that, oh, well, Christ is never returning because his, he was the final revelation, and now we're just going to keep going for the rest of eternity. It's, no, his return is actually the final revelation but um, there, um, yeah, we, we sort of won't be worrying about these topics at that point. Um, but, but Christ's coming uh, and his incarnation and everything like that 
is the final and authoritative um, revelation of God. Right? So we might ask the question, as you can see, I'm sort of stepping down and spiraling down here, um, trying to get to the core of it. What makes Christ's word authoritative? Right? Well, Paul lays it out for us in uh, Colossians 1, 15 through 20. So I'll just read that. Colossians 1, 15 through 20 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that is in every, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So the phrase there that Paul really sort of finishes with is, For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Right? So what makes Christ the final revelation of God is because he is God. Right? He is the fullness of God. He is the fullness of the Trinity incarnated on earth. Right? So this is what really gives... Right. right. This is what... <laughs> good. Um, this is what gives his testimony about the Father, about the Holy Spirit, authority. Right? Because he is God himself. So literally, through Christ, we have God speaking to us directly. We have God giving us the foundation for everything that we believe. And this is the very key tenet of presuppositional apologetics. And this is what is the foundation of this word transcendence. As I said before, we're looking for something that is beyond merely appealing to sort of the mechanisms that we use, like logic, um, you know, reason, our senses, things like that. We need something that justifies them. It's just odd that we think of, um, I, can't, I can't imagine being back in the, when Christ came to earth, when he was, when he was descended from heaven. I, I think, uh, I put myself in, the, in their shoes. They're looking for a Messiah, and then this guy comes along. You know, he's, he's Joseph's son. You know, and, and then all of a sudden he proclaims to be God or he proclaims to be the Son of God. He's the Messiah, the chosen one, and everybody goes, <laughs> nut job, yeah. you know, whack job. Good thing that Messiah thing worked out. He was a terrible carpenter. Yeah, <laughs> and yet, and yet <laughs> today we, we think, we see guys that proclaim, you know, the Dalai Lama, the God-man, and we think, whack job, but there's millions that believe in that stuff. And mm -hmm. it's like... Um, if you put yourself in their shoes back in the day, it must have been a real, just a paradigm yep. shifter. And then unless God opens your eyes to the truth, you will, that's the way the world thinks, man. It's and that, just, you can't blame them. That it's point right there is, doing. yeah, that point there that uh, really what we're finding out through all this study and what we'll conclude with is that on our own, we need God to literally open our eyes and give us the ability to see these things and understand these things. Good. So are you saying that it makes more sense to say that I account for my logic, my ability to reason, uh, my intelligence, my ability to think, and morality, and 
all of these things are better accounted for by being created in God's image as opposed to coming from stardust? Correct. Yes. That is that is precisely the point. So you came to the right conclusion. Thank you, Cameron, for thank you, Cameron, for uh, laying that out for everyone. Yes. Uh, He's a star student. Yep. Give that man a star. Teacher's So um, the the reason I read that passage is it tells us that um, Christ is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Right. So that's sort of the other crucial point here. That in Christ all things have their being. He, you know, he was actually the Word of God that created the world. Right? As 1 John, that's what he's getting at. Christ was literally there, the one who's creating the world with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Right? God is working through Christ and creating everything. So in Him, all things hold together. Right? So for our purposes today, the thing we're focusing on is that the thing that holds, that is held together by Christ is what we would call knowledge or truth. So the sort of key tenet of transcendental uh, argument for God is that all knowledge or all truth is contained, or rather, is, has its foundation and source in God. Okay. So I'm going to give you uh, just really quick how um, Van Til uh, phrased that, how he sort of articulated it. And then I'm going to give you a bunch of examples. We're getting super serious yes. stuff in here. And that's the thing is that we are actually going to the very base here. We're, we are deep into philosophy. This is the very, we're trying to get to the core so that when we encounter other people, we then know our foundation so we can challenge them or rather respond to them correctly if they get to that point. Right? It's good to know our foundation when we go into um, these discussions. So <clears throat> Van Til said, he phrased it this way. So if, if all knowledge is contained, has its foundation and source in God, all truth has its foundation and source from Christ, really, he said this, not a single fact can be known unless it is God that gives it meaning. Say it again. Not a single fact can be known unless it is God that gives it meaning. Okay. I would phrase it this way if I could compete with Van Til in any way. Uh, we know the truth only when our knowledge matches, in part, the perfect and complete knowledge of God. So I'll say that again. We know the truth, or we can be said to have the truth or understand the truth, when our knowledge matches, in part, God's perfect and complete knowledge. So obviously God has complete knowledge, right? We believe He's omniscient. He knows all things. He's perfect in His understanding of Himself and his creation. Therefore, he knows all that can be known, right? The model here is that we can say that we have the truth when our knowledge matches any part of what God knows to be true about himself or reality, right? So I'm going to give a bunch of examples here. Let's take the color of blood, right? Blood appears red to us. We can say under this model that it is true that blood is red because God understands blood to be red through our sensibilities. Okay? Another example. If we see the sky, the color of the sky is blue, we would say it is true that the sky is blue because God understands or knows that the sky is blue. 
right? He created our senses. He created our eyes. He knows how light refracts and, and bounces off of water and uh, different surfaces and stuff like that to create colors for us, right? The point is, is that under this model, truth comes from God. Knowledge comes from God. So we can say that we have truth. We can say that we know things truly, I guess you could say, when it matches what God also understands, right? Um, so there's a standard of truth outside of ourselves. Yes, which places the standard of truth, the source of truth, outside of ourselves. It's beyond mere human sort of subjective, that is personal opinion, right? It's transcendent. It transcends us. And it's universal. And it's in God, right? And it's, it's unchanging, it's universal, and it's complete. It's perfect. It cannot be doubted. It cannot uh, fall into error, right? Another example, um, and this, is, this isn't dealing with our senses. When someone confesses to be a Christian, right, we say, how, how do we know that person is a Christian? Well, as it turns out, we can only say that it's true that a person is a Christian if God knows them to be a Christian, right? If God knows him to be a Christian, then we can say it's true that they're a Christian, right? So all these things, we might say, well, that's great, but how do we know what God knows? That's a very fair question. Well, I think you might see the answer. We know from Scripture, right? Now, it might seem like a bit of a stretch to say, wait a minute, you're saying that Scripture tells us what God knows about colors? Well, not specifically, right? But it does tell us that we were created for this planet, for this world. We are specifically designed... Our senses are in tune with our environment. So for judgments of color, or oh, that feels hot, or that tastes bad, or that sounds loud, or I can't hear that, we'd say our senses, to a degree, are designed for this world. And we gain that from Scripture. That only makes sense, we can only trust our senses, if there's a God who created us specifically for our environment. And actually upholds our ability to do that. And there wouldn't be this universal experience without there being the common grace that God gives, right? Correct. This is why yep. I, and you can translate things. Mm -hmm. Like I can't translate the word red into it, the Chinese word red unless they both had a word for red. Right. Yeah, if, they, they both have a, a distinct word for red, but it, it means the same, same thing. Yep. Because we all sense it the same way. Right. Yeah. And if, if there was no, the point is that if there was no transcendent justification for us trusting our senses, then there would be no reason, that's what we're going to find out, is there's no reason to trust uh, that what I'm experiencing is the same as what you're experiencing. Right? And then we just, the point is, as we'll get to, no one wants to live in that world. And in fact, no one actually does truly live that way. That's what we'll see. So this is the very, this is the, what we've been talking about. That's the transcendental argument for God, that all truth and all knowledge is contained within God, that it, it has its source and foundation in Him. So we can only be said to know the truth when our understanding matches what God knows about Himself or reality. So, for example, religious beliefs, we can only say that a religious belief is correct or accurate or true if it matches what God knows to be true, right? Now, if there are no other gods, God knows that clearly, and it's communicated in Scripture. Therefore, anyone who believes in any other god, Allah or uh, Vishnu or who, whatever, right, 
Um, God knows those, he, he knows they don't exist. So if we say they do exist, it doesn't match what God knows. Therefore, we'd say it's not true. That's how that model works. And we live every day like there is a standard of truth. Like Correct. We make knowledge claims constantly. And Correct. the way to consistently account for that is that yep. we're yep. giving using what God supplies. Yep. Now, if we assume that this is true, what, we're, what we've been talking about, and we actually then flip it and we deny it, what do we find? If we deny God as the transcendent source of knowledge and truth, we fall into basically utter chaos. All right? And this chaos is actually... Theory. Yes. This is precisely what um, Paul, again, in Romans, last week I read Romans 1, I think 16 through 20. The last section, the last portion of that, the final portion of that is Romans 1, or, uh, 21 through 32. And it explains precisely this. Now it's talking about the Jews in particular, right? But the principles still hold the same. Okay? It says, For all, although they knew God, it was clear and present to them. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and excuse me and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever amen for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations to those for those that are contrary to nature and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see it fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what they ought, what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. Um, they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, uh, and so on. <laughs> though, et cetera, et cetera. though, right, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Right. I'm just going to say, uh, Cameron, when you start talking to a, a person who is a you know a non-believer. Their world is just insane. I mean, there's no logic, right? So you, they, immediately they'll say, well, that, that's evil. What Over there, that guy's evil. Well, why? Mm -hmm. How come? Right. What, by what basis do you say he's evil and you're not? Like, well, right. I mean, evil from Stardust. I think that yeah. people, the reason, I'll just disagree a little bit with that. <laughs> <laughs> that to them it isn't illogical because mm -hmm. they just replace God with something else. So oh, yeah. you have, but when you, as a Christian, you look out, like right now you look out and you say, it looks chaotic because some people have put social justice as their God. Some people have put reproductive rights as their God. Other people are putting jobs, right? And so you look Branches. at it and you go, it just, mm -hmm. right? But that's their highest. This is. So it's logical. What they're yeah. doing may be Makes sense. logical if that's. Right, right. And this God. is, this, I think that's a very good point. That and I, I tried to make that a little bit last week. Is that it turns the question turns from, oh my gosh, how can they believe this? 
How could anybody believe that? To, no, that's what they're going to believe. And they're always going to believe that. The people who deny Scripture, who deny God as the source of truth and goodness and, and love and all these sort of things, right? They are, they are always going to pick something else, right? Because I think, and this, this is precisely the man, natural man's right, state, is he is trapped in his foolishness because he is suppressing the truth. He is denying God, right? He's denying the very source from which he's claiming there's any value, right? For example, as Cameron sort of hinted that, yeah, it's like, or, you know, we've been getting at today is that people live as though there is morality. They live as though there is goodness in the world. And when you really press them on that, you say, well, wait a minute, why is there morality? They have to say something like, well, there's morality because nobody likes feeling pain. Well, why should I avoid pain? And when you start pressing them back on this, don't be surprised if they look at you with a blank stare like, what do you mean? I thought we just, that's what we do. It's like, no, you needed to give a justification for why we should avoid pain. That's usually when they get angry. Right. That's usually where they start steamrolling you and just, <sighs> right? That sort of thing. Are you talking more about like how we even get to the fact that morality even exists? Right. Not, not saying what it is or what we should do. Not even, not even what it is or the particular uh, practices or applications of it. Or even logic. Not even what we should do with the logic God's given us, but just... What justifies using it at all. How we can even talk in the first place. Yep. Right. And without... The point of this is that without God as the foundation for those things, without God as the good and perfect judge who tells us what is right and wrong, there is no basis for morality. And I'll also say this. This was sort of a bit of an epiphany for me, is that we say, oh, all right, well, God gave us morality. Great. He told us what to do. But really the key component to that aspect is that unless he holds us accountable for that morality, there's still no reason to listen to it. So we could say, well, God decreed that you know, homosexuality is, is sin. And you could say, well, if he doesn't hold us accountable for that, then whoop-de-doo. Right? So really what gives morality its weight is that there will be accountability for it. We are accountable for our actions. That's the basis of morality. Right? And this actually led back to that introduction part uh, regarding this specific aspect. I'll just finish on this. Um, uh, one of the philosophers during that time actually was aware of this aspect that there has to be some sort of ultimate eternal um, consequence. Otherwise, there's no reason to get anybody to do anything. Why should I care about knowing the truth if there's no consequences for there it? There has to be a Lord. There has to be a Lord. There has to be someone who holds us accountable. And what he ended up doing, Immanuel Kant, he actually said that there is an eternal sort of uh, all-powerful force that is like the collective mind of humanity that holds people accountable. He actually had to take that judicial, uh, the judge aspect of God's character, and he had to sort of rip that off in order to make his system work. He talks more like a Christian than right. a atheist. That's why a lot of people think, like, oh, they like to try to fold in these guys' different philosophies because they, 
use, like I said, they hijack certain little characteristics of God and then don't, don't apply them to actually the fullness of God in Scripture in order to make their system work. And that's, a, that's, a, that's something that happens um, almost with every single philosopher that you read. They have to, and that's the point of today, is that for us to reason, to us, for us to think clearly and to say there is value, to say that I'm correct and someone else is wrong, anything like that, we have to assume that the justification for that is beyond ourselves. And the only justification for that that is any good at all, as Van Til argues, and us as Christians, we argue and we make the point, the only justification that is satisfactory at all is the triune God of Scripture. And that's precisely what we're going to talk about next week, is we're going to look at, uh, in, the bullet, in the outline it says, theistic arguments. We're going to look at how not just any God will do. It has to be the God of Scripture clearly defined. It's not just the all-knowing, impersonal uh, force that governs all things and will eventually hold you accountable. Preacher. No, it's the God of Scripture, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Christ ruling before, uh, by the right hand of God, that holds us accountable, that gives us justification for these things. So that's what we'll look at well, next week. One more week. quick thing. Yeah. Bring a, good, a good exercise for us is to imagine uh, if we were put into a room with a guy that was blind from birth, who never saw a thing, he was just total blackness from birth, he could not experience his eyes, and you you, you got to sit there and describe blue to this guy, and, and through words and through talking, you've got to... You've got to make him understand what the color blue looks like. And it's just, you know, it, you realize how stupid it is. It's yeah. an exercise in futility. It's, it is and futile. So to Trying to, to explain to a fish what it is to be wet. Yeah, and so <laughs> to talk about transcendental godness to a person who is dead right. in their trespasses and sins, spiritually dead, can't discern these things. Right. Unless God supernaturally opens their eyes to see the color blue. Right. So the, They'll never experience it. And so yeah. it's like... At that point in time, we realize no amount of argumentation is going to sway this guy. We just yeah. need to pray for him. Mm -hmm. The Bible says this. How do we know who's a Christian? Right. Whether love one for another. Yep. That's it. Yep. And this is where our job isn't to just, well, they, they, should, they should understand me. They should be persuaded. We go, they're not going to be persuaded by my arguments. <clears throat> the point is, all my job is to do is to show them, no, they actually do know God exists. Because Scripture says they do. Right? They're just suppressing it. That then is a perfect point to then present them with the gospel. To say, no, mm -hmm. Christ is the reason why you think you know, why you know anything. Christ is the reason why you can love. Why you can be loved by other people. Christ is the reason your life has meaning. Right? Well, that's, uh, that's the goal. What about answering a fool according to his folly? Like, if somebody really believes we ultimately come from stardust, why not ask somebody? Well, how do you account for the fact that we're having this conversation that you believe certain yep. moral truths? How do, you, how do you get that from stardust? When, at what point did the stardust start bumping into each other right. and become wrong? Right. No, precisely. And we're going to actually spend a whole class. Um, on stardust? Not on stardust, but on, on sort of methodology and um, what are the best ways of going about answering people when they make claims like There's that. There's also a proverb that says, do not answer a it's actually the very next verse. It's the very next verse. Oh, that's yes. right. All right. Very good. Um, yeah, so next week we're going to be talking about uh, sort of why it has to be the God of Scripture and not just any God will do. So, awesome. Very good. Thank you. Thank you, Jared.